I would like to welcome everyone to the Roxborough Roundtables. My name is Madeline Gerace and I am the student coordinator for the tables. Today our topic is Trump, the First Amendment, and free speech, and our host today will be Professor Evan Lane and Patrick Ryan, Associate Director of Career Services. The Roxborough Roundtables can be heard every first and third Sunday from 9 to 10 a.m. on WGGT LP 92.9 FM, Germantown Community Radio. Thank you for that introduction. Welcome, everyone. Happy Constitution Day on this special edition, September 17th Constitution Day. Uh, you've heard our topic. Uh, I am going to be at least temporarily, the master of ceremonies for our Constitution Day celebration today. I'd also like to introduce my co-host, Evan Lane, who is the program director of the Law and Society program here at Thomas Jefferson East Falls. He is also the acting director of the Arlen Specter Center. He was a lawyer for 28 years and teaches constitutional law here and has done that for the past nine years. Welcome. Thank you, Pat. We're very privileged today to have a very good panel. Our panel today, to my left, is uh, Cody Gallus, I'm the Assistant Director for Campus Activities at Office of Student Engagement. I'm Kelly O'Donnell. I'm an adjunct professor here in the College of Humanities and Sciences. My name is Edward Nichols. I'm the Assistant Director for Diversity and Social Justice in Office of Student Engagement. Uh, I'm Hillel Levinson. Uh, I did teach international law here at uh, Jefferson University, and I am starting in January to teach the capstone program for law and society, uh, and looking forward to that. And I'm Tom Cassetta, and I'm the program director at WGGTLP, Germantown Community Radio. So before we get started talking about the current events revolving around the First Amendment and free speech, let's all get kind of on an equal playing field as far as terms and terminology. So I'll turn to Evan uh, to kind of give us a broad or specific definition. What exactly is free speech under the Constitution? One of the biggest mistakes that Americans make in dealing with free speech because they'll turn to each other and go, I have a First Amendment right to say whatever I want to say. The First Amendment only applies to state action, which means if, the, if you say something, the government cannot punish you, whether it's fine you, jail you, fire you, whatever it may be. But between Pat and I, there's no First Amendment rights between each other. So that's where most people make a mistake. It's what you can say in regards to the government's relationship with you. So I want to start with that. Um, in particular, what we're talking about today is statements made by the President of the United States in regards to the press and how those statements um, may or may not, we'll have discussions here, chill First Amendment rights, which means stop them, even if the government does not issue a law or a punishment, if it says something and threatens something, that it might do something, that's called a chill. And that has just as much effect as locking someone up, the fear of, of something happening as well. So that's, um, I want to just make those definitions up front so we understand what chilling is and what the requirement of state action and government action for the First Amendment to apply. And finally, the President of the United States does have his own right to speak his mind, um, as a citizen would, but that gets complicated, and we're going to talk about that as well. So for a little bit more clarity, the difference between expressing an opinion and having the constitutional right to free speech, that's what you're trying to differentiate with that. Absolutely. So recently, and I think the purpose of this podcast is to talk about specific events related to uh, the First Amendment free speech. So you alluded to this, Trump has attacked the press, which is uh, included in claiming the press is the enemy of the people or fake news. And you have an opinion that this may be uh, a violation of the First Amendment to say these things. Is that correct? Yes. And, and the reason why I say that it, it comes with um, two ways of dealing with it. Um, when Trump makes a statement that the press is the enemy of the people, 
uh, that could have a chilling effect in several ways. First, um, access. If you ask questions that he doesn't like at these press conferences, he has in the past with Acosta from CNN limited uh, his access to news. He wasn't allowed to be in the press conferences, which is his job. So if you're there saying, I gotta be careful with my questions because if they upset the president, I can lose my job, then that's a chilling effect. Um, also, the president of the United States has the ability to control licensing and so forth through the FCC. So if a station, and there's been threats as well against CNN that maybe their license might be suspended or attacked in some way, especially if the any of the people. Then you have a chilling effect when you create that the press is itself the enemy of the people. Then you have followers, millions of Twitter followers, who have given death threats and have threatened press people and have made life very difficult for them. So if you're a member of the news and the President of the United States announces that you are an enemy of the people, we're not talking about someone he disagrees with, because in the past, Presidents have made very strong statements that they disagree with the press, and the press is wrong. And they have every ability and should do that, especially when the press is wrong. But by labeling them an enemy of the people, much like we're at war with them, then they become in danger. So if you're a member of the press, you don't have a security force. You don't have anyone protecting you, really. And suddenly you have Twitter followers by the thousands sending you death threats because the President of the United States has said you are an enemy of the state, you're not going to write anything or be afraid to write or be afraid to investigate. And that's the chilling effect as well. And finally, the other effect is the press has always had the role in the United States as being the fourth estate, checking on government, doing investigation like the Watergate investigation and other things that the press has done. If you don't have the credibility at all of the United States public, then you lose, and people lose complete confidence, then that ability to check on government disappears, and you become fake news. If Nixon thought of fake news back then, he would just go fake news on Watergate, and it wouldn't have gone anywhere. So you demasculate the press, you take away their power, because you call them the enemy of the people and you call it fake news. So what do you have left? You have state news, like Prada, when in the Soviet Union, where you have nothing but the state-run newspaper, which is sanctioned by the, by the president. Otherwise, everything else doesn't exist. So we lose that ability to check, and what we have is dictatorship. So I am very fearful of this enemy of the people attack. Um, I'd be interested in what other people um, may think about that. Um, so I'll go to my left, and I'll see right here. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I completely agree on those points. Uh, I think just the term fake news is very harmful. Um, and just seeing how prevalent that has become, it's kind of in almost everyone's vernacular. Um, and that's just a very strange thing, because you are just completely um, eradicating the credibility of that. So it's like it's centralizing the information, kind of is just as what you said, but um, that's just a very dangerous thing. You want kind of competing ideas to be able to be expressed. So if only people are believing information are coming from one direct source, um, that's just a very troubling thing for me in general. Um, I was kind of taken by something you said, Evan, a moment ago about um, the danger of uh, the chilling effect as you use like Jim Acosta as an example from CNN, right? So he'd be shut out, he wouldn't have a job. Whatever. I think one of the kind of unintended and weirdly perverse consequences of this whole conversation is the threat of like the consolidation of corporate media and the privileging of certain types of journalism over others, right? There's no real danger to CNN in this whole business. They'll, they can't get a cost in, they'll get someone else in to replace him, right? They'll still have a presence at the table. If it were some <coughs> other type of news source and that happened to them, maybe they had fewer resources, then there is a danger that other voices could be shut out. I'm not talking about like right-wing alternative news, I'm just talking about 
having that kind of diversity, right? And I just want to put out there that maybe we should be wary throughout this conversation about coming too swiftly to the defense of CNN, right? Like, where is, like, um, the discussion about manufacturing consent gone? Um, we, we still need to maintain a critical edge, right? We shouldn't kind of just automatically run to Jim Acosta's defense because Trump is bullying him, right? Obviously, there are troubling implications, as you outlined so well. But I just want to put it out there that maybe, you know, the corporate news enterprise is not necessarily our ally here. Just throwing it out there. So not only to jump off of the, you know, to talk about that a little bit more and more kind of personalize this a little bit, but not only is Trump attacking these entities like CNN and the, and the corporate news media, but also attacking individuals in particular. And so I'm really interested to get people's opinions on not only how those attacks on individuals have impacted you, uh, but if you yourself feel that now you are more restricted because when he says things like, this is our country, not theirs, if you don't like it, leave it, does that make you feel more uncomfortable in your own country? I want to make that clear as well. And remember, you talk about the congressman. Three or four of them were born in the United States, and the other one's a United States citizen since 2000. So not that that should even matter, because if you're a congressperson, you should have respect. But we're talking about being told that if you don't agree with a point of view, that you should leave the country instead of express your point of view. And what I was concerned with, the chilling effect that has, not on the press or corporate press, but the chilling effect that has on individuals and in expressing their point of view. So I was interested in what other people on panel may think. And we have some new people who came in, Professor Leakes is over, over there. Or uh, Professor Levinson, I want them to think you're Professor Leakes. Uh, to balance I would have preferred the topic today have been the question of what are the responsibilities of a free press. Uh, to me, that is a much more salient issue to, in today's world than the issue of government's restriction or government being restricted on what it can do or protected or for, what, for what it can do and what it can say. Um, I was in government for eight years, and I understand very clearly uh, the, the issues that the press has to do in covering, and this was local government, city of Philadelphia, and, and uh, we had press conferences and uh, meetings with, with the media, and the thing that disturbed me was that, uh, and, I, and I was subject to what I will characterize uh, as irresponsible journalism. Uh, and the thing that bothered me the most was I understand the value of a free press. I also understand the value of the press being responsible and liable for what it is, does irresponsibly. And that unfortunately happens a lot um, you, you talked about the, the Nixon situation. There were two reporters that that did that. Well, every young reporter that came out at that time uh, wanted to find another Nixon story to be able to report, and they did that in a, in, in my opinion, in a very irresponsible way. Uh, I enjoyed the repartee between myself and the reporters that covered me. Uh, I, I, I had no problem with dealing it, with it, except that when I saw what was being aired on KYW or in the Inquirer, or in those days, the Bulletin, uh, you all are too young to remember the fact that we had another evening newspaper, um, I was very concerned with uh, the way what I was saying was being reported, and yet I had no redress. I had no ability to do anything to be able to do it. And, 
And, and what I think you see happening with Trump is his rebellion against the fact that he has no other way of redress against the media except by what he is saying. And, and, and whether you agree with him or not, I'm not sure. I, 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 I really disagree with that. Um, he has millions of Twitter followers. He has the ability to speak out at any time. He has complete access anytime he wants to hold a press conference, which he hasn't held in so long. He has the ability to call it. He has the ability to go out there and say the press is wrong and give evidence. He has the ability to give his policies. What he doesn't have the ability and must not have the ability is to call them the enemy of the people. And I know that you probably never did that, Well, I'm sure you disagreed with the press, but to call them the enemy of the people. These are American citizens. And we saw one of our press in Washington Post was actually murdered and didn't, and didn't get any blowback from our government because the press is the enemy of the people. And when you give that message out to this country and to the world that the press is the enemy of the people, that is dangerous. He has every ability to disagree, and he should. The press is never not wrong. They're wrong a lot. I've been interviewed, too, a lot. And I've been misquoted. And I get aggravated off, but I have the ability to say there was a misquote, but I would never say that these people are enemies. That's where it crosses the line. And we can't have it, because once they're the enemy of the people, freedom disappears in this country, and we are at war. When you have an enemy, one at the other, we are at war. Not in disagreement. We, can be, we should be in disagreement all the time. That's if we're in a democracy. We should be able to disagree. And you and I disagree a lot, but we have never called each other an enemy. So I think that's where you Not so on. far. Not yet. <laughs> uh, I'm, not here, I'm not here to de defend what Trump does or says. I don't see that as my role today. Uh, what I do object to is the fact that uh, the, the, the question I have is, what's your definition of someone who crosses a line that does become the enemy of whatever it is. And I think false or irresponsible reporting may reach close to that line, if not crossing. And, and I have a real problem with the fact that you may single out that one phrase that he used. And by the way, uh, I don't consider Twitter part of me. Uh, you, you may, but I, I, I still think there is a line between what is on social media and what is what is real, supposedly real reporting, and 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 there is when you put on that jacket that says you are a reporter, uh, there is a responsibility at that that you assume when you do that, and and I think we've lost in this country that sense of responsibility that a good reporter, a trained reporter uh, has. And so much of it has become part of show business or part of, of uh, an irresponsible. This goes back a lot of years. This is not a new thing under, under Trump. Uh, this went on when Clinton was the, the president, went on when uh, many other presidents before him. Uh, it has always been my opinion that uh, it's a huge responsibility, you assume, when you take the title of a reporter. I, I think we can agree, but we're talking about the first, we could just go with this. We could agree on that, because everyone should be responsible. Sam? Uh, hi, I'm um, really uh, glad to be here talking about all these things with you. Um, just uh, one brief comment uh, that addresses both of the, the threads we've brought up today. Um, so I think there's a tendency to, to um, witness what's gone on in the last two or three years as um, a big paradigm shift. And I think that has happened to a certain extent, but there are historical precedents for both of these um, items we brought up today. One would be the idea of fake news. I mean, something that comes to mind um, in my lifetime would be Colin Powell going to the um, the UN Security Council and talking about uh, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, even though the intelligence they had very much pointed towards the opposite. Um, going back a little further in time would be the Gulf of Tonkin incident that um, 
these skirmishes that supposedly happened led to the intensification of the Vietnam War. Again, you could call that as fake news. Um, regarding like people going home, um, yes, like you know, Trump uh, has done this with some frequency, and it's disturbing to say the least. Um, but again, like telling people to go home is a long trope of. Uh, uh, in U.S. history, you see that with telling people to go back to Africa, telling people to go back to Ireland, or go back to China. Um, I mean, the you know telling anyone to go back home, even though they're U.S. citizens, is ridiculous. Um, especially so that two of them are from Puerto Rico, which has been um, part of the U.S. Uh, Republic in a peculiar, disturbing way since 1917. Um, so, so again, just like to add to this conversation a historical dimension and um, see how what is happening now is something different, but also part of a recurring pattern from, um, from U.S. history. Um, I, would, I would agree with that, with the, the historical part. I would say for communities of color, for the most part, these national news uh, networks and or publications have, from my experience, been very rarely trusted. So within our communities, there are in larger cities, in cities where there's like large people of color, large populations of people of color, like Chicago, Baltimore, North Carolina, um, in Atlanta, there are specific publications and radio stations geared towards like the uh, Latino population, the black population in those cities because those were the news networks that we trusted. So for, I would say, for us, Trump saying, you know, uh, fake news coming from CNN, Washington Post, and things like that really wasn't a big thing for us because it was like, yeah, we'll turn to CNN, but it's not where we're getting majority of our news. Um, but in him saying that, it caused a lot of danger because he is the president, and the president, no matter what he says, will, all, will always, or who that person is, uh, will always carry weight. So not so much the fake news that affected us, but um, the comment itself, because once you say, you know, uh, you get these um, publications are fake news, and then you add that they should go back to their country, and then a few times he called out, um, I, her name loses me. Um, AOC? Uh, she works for the, um, she's the correspondent for the White House. Why are you talking about that? Uh, I can't remember her name, but a few times he called her out also, uh, speaking on behalf um, of the uh, Black News Network. And he called everything that she did with, uh, as fake news. And she's the only black correspondent in the White House, or was at the time. And that caused its own uh, shift uh, in communities of color because we only had that one correspondent. Um, and so in him calling her out and then saying that she should speak to like the Black Caucus, um, that caused a stir. But you, I say all that to say him saying that, you know, fake news was a thing, it kind of, it's kind of the same the same thing that communities of color have always been saying because we've reported things to national news publications and the networks <coughs> that were never picked up. Um, gun violence in Chicago, people report that all the time. It's rarely ever reported unless it's by a local publication in like Chicago. Um, so we kind of resonated with that a little bit, which was kind of awkward for us. Um, but again, the things that he said behind it caused a lot of violence and attention to come, for our, come towards our communities, which I think was the negative impact on that. So April you, Ryan. April Ryan. Thank you. So, so I do want to make one comment that's a small you know, side note from this Twitter thing, of Twitter not being news or not being the same as reporting the news. And I would argue that Trump specifically uses it to manufacture the news uh, and create the story. So if what you tweet ends up being policy or proposed policy and then is written about, there in and of itself would be the news. And I would say for like Twitter, Twitter for a lot of people, especially the younger generation and even, I mean, even for myself, um, has become our news source and a trusted news source because it's firsthand. It's not going through several companies, it's not going through managers, it's not being based on if it's going to be shown because it's going to get a lot of viewers. It's someone experiencing it firsthand. They're going live, and you can see it for yourself, um, what will be shown. I mean, even CNN, Fox, they all get their 
you know, live recordings from someone from Twitter. You can see the you can see someone post something on Twitter now, and then someone from CNN say, "Can we use this and credit you?" Not only that, but you could respond immediately, which makes it interactive. Exactly. So interactive exactly. resource, which makes it more appealing. Yeah. As well. Um. And so, like, um, mediums like Twitter and Instagram and things like that that have that live feature um, have become a credible news source for a lot of communities, especially for for communities that haven't had a voice. Uh, in the past uh, with these larger publications and networks. I'd be interested, if we were never the press here, I'd be interested in his point of view. <laughs> Not sure if he's actually a member of the press, but I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. I mean, I think when you're discussing, you know, the word of fake news, I think we've entered a kind of a unique era and that we have media that is consolidated, which was alluded to earlier. So what has happened, and because of the vast resources due to ways we receive information now. You know, you receive through the internet, the phone, television, it's just, you're overwhelmed with information now. So it's how do you filter that information? Everyone's vying to get that, you know, you, you for three minutes or 30 seconds. So it all comes down to the sound bite. So what's happening is finding those trusted individuals who you can respect. So when you have the president claiming that it's fake news and devaluing facts, and there's no one there to repute the facts, the media doesn't take the time to say, no, this isn't. You know, no, you're wrong, and here's why you're wrong. And when the president makes a statement saying it's fake news, he's not telling you why it's fake. It's just, I disagree with you. And that's the difference between you're not showing information. And going back to the other thing about neighborhoods being discussed, it's the same thing. You're not allowing the individual on the other side to counter that with a factual information because we're all vying for this really short gathering of attention. And that is, I think, is one of the media's responsibilities to do is a kind of step back recognize that it's their also responsibility to, you know, make sure that what they're putting out there allows another side, not necessarily differing opinion, but if someone wants, you know, check your facts and, hey, here's how I see that, here's a perception, and try to get a conversation going. I think what we're reading right now is it's everything in the news media, from my perspective, in the larger scope, is presented like it's a sporting match. I mean, even the way we watch television, it's got, we got the graphics and the flashing lights and the whole, you know, everything is it's a sporting match. I mean, I've watched the debates, you know, they have a lineup, like here's our starting lineup and our team, it just as sort of, it kind of annoys me. Uh, to go back to a comment that, I'm sorry, I missed your name. Evan. Evan, uh, that Evan made earlier about the fact that in a lot of communities, of necessity, they had to create black stations and black newspapers in order to uh, counteract what was or was not said properly in the in the media, and I think that's I I, I guess I'm not sure that I would use fake if I were the, the president. I would use irresponsible, maybe as a better word, uh, because uh, again in Philadelphia we always had a black newspaper, and and many times. When I was misquoted, I would go to them, and they would pick up what was I did say, and and report that more honestly, and and and, uh, uh, and what I consider to be, or what in today's vernacular is called fake news. It's really irresponsible reporting, and that is my my greatest concern. Um, it's very frustrating being a public official in today's world to be able to get across what you really are trying to say. Uh, it doesn't come across as clearly. And this goes back 50 years. I'm a lot older than I look. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, it's, it's not a new thing. It, it's that maybe our current president is making it more noteworthy uh, on a daily basis. And maybe that's good. Maybe we'll all come out of this with better reporting more responsible reporting and less quote fake news unquote. I would say that I I would agree that for the most part I wish he would I, I wish he would call it irresponsible reporting if that's what he honestly felt that it was. I'm hesitant to believe I don't know Trump honestly. I only know what I've seen on him with ABC or NBC or whatever show he had. Um, I, I'm hesitant to believe that he thinks in the same um, realm as you that it is irresponsible reporting. For me, a lot of the times, at least from what I see on TV, 
is that he doesn't like the individual or he doesn't like the story, so it automatically becomes fake news. Um, and that's where the problem lies, that if you don't like the story, it's fake news. Not that you were misquoted or you know that the source was not trusted. It's I don't like the individual and or I don't like what image it's giving of me you know, to the public, so it's automatically fake news. I think that's where the danger lies and I think that's what, um, again, for like younger generations, not even with Trump's help, but why, they, why uh, sources like Twitter are more now reliable because now we're not going through anybody. We're not going through anybody that's known and it's, uh, it's a common person and it's, it's, again, firsthand experience. I doubt that he is worried about being misquoted because a lot of the times he is quoted correctly. He's on like several recordings and he called that fake news. Well, it's like hard to debate a, a live recording. Um, so yeah, I, I just hesitate to believe that he believes that, that it's um, not a credible source. The, the danger in all this, and I have no problem, but I think Patrick um, about offering information that if you believe something is wrong, give, it the, give us the facts, show us. And that's fine. That's, again, debate, and that's the way we're supposed to operate. But if you just say fake news without showing why, how, and not proving it, mm -hmm. then everything becomes fake news that opposes you. And at that point, then there's no truth anymore. Mm -hmm. Because then it's just, you say fake news, and we, we're in a land of 1984, where the truth, or the untruth, or whatever they called it in the book, is manufactured by the government. And that is a very dangerous situation where we're all doubting, or oh, the press is irresponsible, the press is terrible, the press is fake news, that even if they came out with a picture of him shooting someone on Fifth Avenue using his example, he would say, fake news, and people would believe it. So there's no truth anymore. Good hands. Yeah, I definitely agree with this, especially since recently we just saw the image that came out about the hurricane and how it was supposed to hit Alabama, and he wrote in with a Sharpie trying to change the facts of it. And then um, I think Professor Lane can talk more about this, but how um, I'm not sure who it was, but whether something that it was changed and they had a tweet that said that it wasn't going to hit Alabama, and then it was taken down. We just saw that. Yeah. Um, he's, the facts are, and there's no denying it, Wednesday before the hurricane, Alabama was in play, like so many other different models. And he was supposedly getting hourly updates. By Sunday, it was not. And when he tweeted that Alabama wasn't significantly in play, I think he, he stated, it was wrong. Not everyone could be wrong. That's okay. But instead of saying he was wrong, what he said is he was right. And when the National Weather Service, who's very concerned about these things, because people close businesses, they leave, they're terrified, money is spent, it's a big deal when a hurricane's coming your way. When they immediately said, no, Alabama is not a play, they immediately put it out, which was a responsible job by them. They were pressured, and an investigation is going on now as to who did it, whether it was Mulvaney or someone else, to withdraw the, the tweets with the accurate information was withdrawn. Now you can say this is silly, it's not silly. Because what it is, is that the government right now through Trump is manufacturing the narrative, which is not true. So at this point, if you can withdraw a tweet and you can draw a line, a cheap little line, it was poorly done on, on a map showing that it goes into Alabama when it, when it didn't, then what else is not true? And the truth loses in all this. I agree 100% with Hillel. The press can be irresponsible because they want to make money. And as you say, Pat, the money, it's the, you're quick, it's the time, all that stuff has to be I understand all that and it all seems to be done. But when it's not proving someone wrong, it's manufacturing truth, and the truth disappears and we have nothing but the dictatorship, which happens to be the way things are through history anyway. And that's where we're heading. So I'd like to sort of shift the conversation to the social ramifications, looking at, you know, do people in this room feel like uh, their First Amendment rights are under attack, as Evan sort of pointed out, you versus the state. Uh, 
Do you feel like you're less likely to speak or engage in debate because of consequences that could come your way? It's a good thing for the students. Um, let's ask Tom students. It's very sad uh, that this conversation is getting caught up in some very small excerpts from Trump's commentary. We have a much more serious problem in this country, and that is to differentiate between reporting and opinion. And that is really where I have a serious, serious concern. And, and at one time, when I picked up the local newspaper, on the front page, I knew that was reporting. And more and more, I find opinion pieces on the front page of the, the local newspaper. And, and, and that, that confuses people when they can't differentiate easily between factual, quote, and I'm using this in quote, factual reporting and an opinion piece. Uh, it, it's sad that we're being diverted by what Trump may or may not talk about Alabama. I mean, that is so insignificant in the issues that we're facing in the world today. And, and it, it is very sad that, that that's what we hang on to and not the issue, the bigger issue of what is the media's responsibility to bring them, their own people in line with good factual reporting. Uh, I found also often when I was dealing with reporters that they were lazy in that they didn't follow up and find out what the real facts were. And that's firsthand experience I'm talking about. I'm not talking about somebody else telling me something. That's my own experience, and that's what is happening in today's world. They're, 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 they're tired, they're lazy, uh, no one, is, no one is, is calling them to test. I remember in, in the bulletin, there was a final- The trial, the trial has to come okay. up, because we have limited time. He's like communications. The director of communications. Uh, communication of Jefferson. I am quite frankly terrified at a lot of what I've been hearing. I may be the only working journalist in the room. You can find many anecdotes of journalists failing, and they exist. They especially exist when you talk about communities of color. They've existed about our coverage of war. They've existed about a lot of things. But to suggest that journalists, for the most part, are out there making up news, not following up on stories, or basically reporting things that are false is abhorrent. Journalists in this nation are under attack from the left and the right because there's this wholesale belief that what journalists do is simply propagate some sort of belief. And that is not a reflection, I would say, of journalism. It's a reflection of our nations moving into political silos in terms of how we think. If you are progressive, you only want to go to progressive sources. If you're conservative, you only want to go to conservative sources. And it's not just been Donald Trump who has been calling things fake news. The left has had its own long history of attacks against the media, many of them fair, but a lot of them based on anecdotes that has led to this situation where we do not believe what legitimate, hardworking reporters are doing. Could journalists do a better job? Absolutely. That's what my research is focused on, especially when we talk about uh, communities of color. However, we need to have some perspective here and understand that even when we talk about Trump, when we talk about speech, we have a deeper problem in this nation where we simply do not communicate effectively and we simply are believing the truth that we would want to believe as opposed to having substantial debates on issues. And that has led to a manifestation of saying all journalism is fake. As a working journalist who has written many stories, I can assure you, journalists do the best job they can. And for the most part, the stories they collect are right. Could they use better tactics? Absolutely. Could they use more voices? Yes. But what I'm hearing here is dangerous, and it's a reflection of our nation's inability to, to effectively talk with each other 
to deal with these issues. And that, to me, is the greatest threat to the First Amendment. The First Amendment is designed to facilitate debate. We're not debating. We're arguing and we're not listening. Uh, I, I just want to take this opportunity to zoom out a little bit from the world of journalism and bring us back into a classroom context, since we're here on a college campus and everything. Um, I've taught the class debating U.S. issues like seven or eight times now, uh, and I think uh, there's a potential inroad here to kind of connect some of these conversational threads, uh, and that is the issue of evidence, right? So. Um, not just whether journalists are journalizing responsibly, uh, but also in the reception of the things that the media produces, how are audiences valuing um, media products relative to the evidence that backs them up, right? So in the classroom, what you want to do is teach your students to construct arguments using evidence, right? Uh, and I think one of the things that um, critics from both the left and right are kind of spot on is that when you dig down into the details of evidence supporting claims, that's kind of where things get muddled. Um, and I just wanted to say that, like, as someone who, you know, teaches Maddie how to write op-eds uh, as a way of um, understanding US history and contemporary politics, um, maybe the solution here is thinking about what we're teaching our students who then become media consumers, who then become journalists, maybe, um, about how um, conversations happen, how arguments are constructed, um, how you can evaluate things critically while still consuming. Uh, I don't know, but there's like some very real, like practical things that we can do, I think, in the college classroom, in high school classrooms, whatever, um, to like solve this issue. Um, I don't think it's some intractable problem or some philosophical quandary, right? We just need to be contributing to a society where we have um, critical and aware consumers and producers of media. So I just want to raise one issue because we're running out of time, but I think it's interesting. Um, is on college campuses, I'm interested in what the students think because it's really your school. Um, there are some colleges that are inviting people who are giving opinions that may be controversial and or disagreed by others. Um, it, and colleges are refusing to have these people come because of the problems that they may bring to campus, uh, whether it's a right-wing speaker, or a left-wing speaker, or a middle-wing, whatever it is, we have college campuses rising. So we don't want those people to come speak here. So I, I, I'm interested in, in the student's point of view on that. So are you a student, by the way? I am a student. Go right ahead. <laughs> My name is Danny. Um, I think it's important to bring those people to, to school to share their opinions and have conversations that surround their opinions. Um, one of my, so uh, I'm kind of in a weird spot in life where like uh, kind of defining what activism means to me. Um, and part of, that, uh, part of that component is educating people um, on like how their thoughts may be harmful to the existence of a group of um, another group of people, um, and that conversation can be hard to have um, when when you look like me and you're talking to uh, a white male. Um, when so I work in retail, so every Sunday or recently, uh, because the uh, NFL season is starting, you know getting asked, like, uh, are you excited about the game? Um, and my, my uh, response is always like, a simple no. But like, how do I tell um, these people that are staring at me um, and wondering why I'm not excited about the game? Uh, how do I tell them that I'm not excited because 
um, someone uh, risked their job to bring awareness to something that's happening in my community, and he was fired. Um, how do I have this conversation with someone who comes in with an American flag on their shirt and says, uh, that says, um, if you don't like what this country uh, does or serves, I'll help you pack your bag. I don't have this conversation with people who have a complete disregard for my very existence. Um, so I think having uh, a safe space for those conversations to be had, I guess, um, would be very uh, beneficial to uh, the community uh, that is our school and the community that surrounds our school. Uh, yeah. Thanks, yes, sir. Some other students as well. Um, I'm Sonali. I'm also certified, a certified young person. So, <laughs> how, how do you get that? <laughs> So something that the good professor was mentioning before, um, in terms of uh, creating a discussion, learning how to critically think, um, and presenting evidence base. So I happen to be a, um, a pre-medical science major. So obviously evidence is kind of built into everything that we do. Um, but just, I would like to kind of bring up the point of perspective, because a lot of the issues um, that we're kind of tackling right now, you know, whether it's like social or sociopolitical, those require much more perspective. Um, from a science standpoint, um, if I have to go look at something, I'm going to go to PubMed or I'm going to go straight to my textbook. Those are like, official sources, and I know that that's like a safe gate. But something that was also said is that there's so many opinion pieces now. Um, sometimes, like I'm pretty sure you can make a game out of it. Like if you throw out an article, they come from an official news source or they come from the Onion. Like it's a little. <laughs> It's a little much right now, and I kind of understand what people are saying in terms of uh, audiences are just generating apathy. Like, it's either they're very hard blown, they have an exaggerated response to media, um, and have like a very solid opinion, or they're just completely apathetic and they don't really respond to media because they know, oh, it's another opinion piece, oh, it's another this, or maybe it's like a a targeted piece. So, in terms of perspective. Um, not all college students, or not all of the youth today, or just people in general, will have that college education. So I think there needs to be some other way for us to instill that perspective, instill that critical thinking, uh, because evidently we're not all going to have that perspective. But that's something that I actually learned in college, to look at things at different angles, and it's not just like one way this, to think something. Um, that's partially from my science background, in terms of you know, I, I was just going to my one news source, and that could be the same for a lot of people in, um, just like normal Americans, like, oh yeah, I only go to the news source that, you know, has facts that I like. So it's, we have to learn how, as a society, how to kind of make those different perspectives, and I think that also falls both on, the responsibility falls both within the president and within journalism. And it's not just like, one is the enemy and the other is the enemy. So I guess my final question and thought is, is the college campus the last frontier for healthy debate? Can this happen nowhere else in the world, or at least in the United States? Can healthy debate only happen on a college campus? Is that what Define I'm hearing? Define healthy. <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't call each other the enemy. I guess we'll use Evans. Or uh, not yet, it's a lot. One last thought. Uh, many times I hear the the expression used in challenging something. What's in a name? Uh, well, uh, I don't know where this idea of a journalist, what happened to the good old word reporter? Uh, that is really much a much more significant title to what they're supposed to be doing. They're supposed to be reporting what is taking place, not journalizing what is, what is the case. <coughs> Again, I go back to the days when my father used to bring home the evening bulletin and I would share with him the news and the editorial page. And there was a difference. 
I understood what the editorial page was about. It was, that was journalism, that wasn't reporting. But today, we've lost that distinction. And I think it's a very sad commentary on what this country is, it has, has become. And if we could get that cleaned up. I've got five minutes. Thank you. Eric, we just comment on the college Oh, I'm sorry. Um, I would say for the college, it, it, to your question, is the college campus the last area you could have um, those safe discussions? I would say for a lot of people, it is, um, because in, on a college campus, a lot of the time you can control um, <coughs> the atmosphere, you can control the environment. You know, um, in having these debates, especially with the current social political climate, there's a real and present danger for many different populations. To have these type of conversations on the street nowadays could lead to physical violence, and so for to in in order to have these conversations, to have them safely, to have them moderated, you know, just to and have them timed and all the other stuff that goes to safe discussion, a college campus oftentimes is that last is that last place again because of, uh, the the violence that. The violence that is um, real today that we see on the news, um, it could be real for any one of us, and we could immediately become that story. So for a lot of people, yes, the college campus is that last area, and a lot of ca college campuses historically have been that place to have debates, you know, during the civil rights era and things like that. They would invite the public on to college campuses. Other than a college campus, the church um, was the only other place you could have these discussions, and I'm not too sure how big a role religion is playing, you know, currently for a lot of for a lot of people. So, with the journalism, I've taken both Professor O'Donnell's and Professor Lane's classes. They teach you to check your sources. Like, don't just read something and think it's true. And I feel like that's what a lot of people are doing. They'll go on Twitter and automatically believe it. And like the journalists are doing the best they can because people lie. Like our president lies. Like so like if somebody tells you something and you think it's true and like you're the journalist, like how are you supposed to know they're lying unless you just keep looking? And then they'll just get mad and it's just like a cycle. Like nothing's really like true anymore, pretty much. So we'll do one more comment and then we'll wrap this up. Since this is being broadcast on G Town Radio, I wanted to make sure that the residents of the city knew that there are efforts to engage in debates uh, that are being led by journalists and others uh, to talk about really tough discussions. And one of those is the Germantown Info Hub, which is a project that I'm part of, where we actually facilitate debates and discussions in a safe space, usually next to Uncle Bobby's in Germantown, to just have these type of discussions where Bring your ideas, bring your opinions, and we're certainly not the only one. And I think there's a movement across this nation to take the classroom from outside of the university and facilitate these debates. And I, I'm encouraged that this is something that's actually growing. I want to thank everyone for uh, joining us today. And once again, happy Constitution Day on this September 17th. Uh, so I appreciate you engaging in this conversation. I will turn it back over. All right, just to have a shout out to James Madison, my constitution today. <laughs> Thank you.